0: And Aristotle said that persuasion was the art of getting somebody to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do if you didn't ask.
1: Welcome to The Corporate Middle. I'm your host, Donald Metter. If you want to be successful, you need to learn to be more persuasive. My guest today is Brian Ahern, who is an expert on just that, teaching others to be more persuasive. I think you are really going to enjoy today's discussion. Let's get to it.
0: Welcome to The Corporate Middle, your survival guide for corporate insanity.
1: Thanks so much, Brian Ahern, for joining me today. I'm excited to have you on the show to talk to us all about what in the world persuasion and influence mean, because I know it's such an important topic today for anyone, not just people working in the day-to-day corporate grind, but learning how to be more persuasive and influence. So thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, my pleasure, Donald. It was a pleasure to meet you a few weeks ago out in, uh, in Arizona, and I'm happy to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We, we met uh, at the POP workshop, the Principles of Persuasion workshop, uh, which I just got done taking. So I'm pretty excited to put some of these things in practice and talk about them Uh, With you today, I do want to touch on a little bit of your background, which is actually pretty interesting. If you look at just at your credentials, you know, top 100 influencers by the Science of Digital Marketing, top 30 psychology blogs. You know, you've been cited in multiple books. You've got a bunch of training courses on LinkedIn. You're one of only 20 individuals in the world who actually holds the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer, you know your stuff. And I think that's really interesting to talk about kind of the journey you've went on to get into this persuasion. So where did that come from? Where did you get interested in this whole psychology of persuasion?
0: Well, like a lot of things in life, Donald, I stumbled into it. I had been involved with sales training at the company that I used to work for. And this goes back into the early 2000s. And somebody who had worked in my department was studying for their master's at the Ohio State University, she came down and gave a video to my boss and I. She said, I think you guys will really like this. Well, it was Robert Cialdini presenting at Stanford. As Soon as I watched the video, the light bulb came on. It was like, holy cow, this is the psychology that underlies all the sales training we do. This is why these sales techniques that you teach people, why they work. So it appealed to me on that level. A couple other things that appealed to me about Cialdini's approach were It was all based on science, and I'm a pretty analytical person, so that really gave me confidence that I could step out and talk about this. And the third thing was his stance on ethics, that he talked about non-manipulative ways to get people to do things. Well, I started using that videotape in some training. I'd go to different offices. I'd show it. We would talk about the concepts. And in the meantime, I signed up for Stanford's marketing material, and they had lots of great resources. Well, one day, one of their marketing pieces crosses my desk and I'm flipping through it and there's Cialdini's picture. And it says in bold letters, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation. And I thought, I cannot believe they use that word. He's so clear about non-manipulative ways to get people to do things. So that ethical part of me felt compelled to address it. So I emailed Stanford and I said, basically, I don't know anybody who wants to be manipulated nor do I know anybody who wants to be known as a good manipulator. That one word cannot be helping your sales, but it really could be hurting. Well, I never heard from Stanford, but sometime later, my phone rings at work, and it's a representative from Influence at Work, Robert Cialdini's organization. And she said, I'm calling to personally thank you on behalf of Dr. Cialdini. You sent an email to Stanford, and because of that, they're changing the marketing of our video." And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And she said, you know, if if your company ever needs a guest speaker, Dr. Cialdini travels the world and he talks about this. And I said, well, I sit next to the woman who books our speakers. Would you like to talk to her? And as fate would have it, in the summer of 2004, uh, Dr. Cialdini was in Columbus a, a number of times and addressed some of our agents. And it was during that time that I went to Arizona and went through the same workshop, Donald, that you went through. And I was so intrigued by it that I told my boss, I want to go back and get certified to teach that. Now, it took me three years to ultimately persuade him <laughs> to let me do that. But ultimately, I got the green light. And in uh, early 2008, I went out and spent a week with Dr. Cialdini and, and others at Influence at Work and got certified. And the rest, as they say, is history. I've been teaching this now for almost a dozen years. And um, I knew it was what I wanted to do with my life when I left corporate America and I made that choice last year and this is what I'm now doing full time.
1: Wow, that's that's pretty interesting journey and I, I guess if if you had actually had that workshop before it wouldn't have taken you three years to convince your boss, right? You've been able to persuade him a lot quicker.
0: (laughs) Well, he was at the workshop with me too. So he knew everything I was trying to do. Um, But but really, it was was a matter of our company was going through a change. We knew that we were going to have a change at the top and then everybody gets real tight. Nobody wants to spend money, do anything a little different. But like a dog with a bone I wouldn't let go of it and and finally I finally got it and you know it's a great story of persistence sometimes you don't get what you want the first or second time but you just keep coming at it from different angles and and you stay true and quite often it works out yeah
1: I think there's a lot of truth to that statement I've certainly seen that in my professional life as well sometimes uh, you do have to have that persistence to get where you need to get. Moving back toward you know, looking at you know persuasion and influence. I think you know one of the most frustrating things if you're sitting in the corporate middle, right? You're sitting in this middle layer of management. You feel powerless. You feel like you don't have any influence. You don't have any authority. And a big part of that is trying to get people to listen to your ideas and people to listen to things that you want to get done. And so I, I kind of want to really hone in on that a little bit and, and kind of talk, just let's back, even back up even farther. You know, How do we define persuasion? Because I feel like persuasion and influence kind of get used interchangeably a little bit. So how, how would you define them?
0: Well, I think influence is something that people can have regardless of their understanding of the influence process. For example, uh, somebody who's famous. They may not be trying to influence people, but because of their stature, if they like a product, other people will like that product. They're not having to try to necessarily do something. And quite often, frankly, people who are in positions like that, they may actually be going about the influence process the wrong way, but because of who they are, people still listen to them. When we talk about persuasion, when I talk about it very specifically, the best definition that I've come across is from Aristotle. And Aristotle said that persuasion was the art of getting somebody to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do if you didn't ask. And I think that's a great definition, right? Moving someone to do something that in the absence of your interaction, they will not do. That's what we talk about as persuasion. That's the skill of moving people. And Donald, I want to emphasize this. It's far more than just changing people's mind or convincing them. Because I often will share this example. If you have a a son or daughter and you say clean your room, do you want them to A, say mom, Dad, that's a good idea? (laughs) No. Or B, get in there and clean your room. Right? (laughs) We want B. We want it's not enough to get them to think it's a good idea or convince them it's a good idea if they don't ultimately act on it. So when I talk about persuasion, it's how do we communicate with people in a way that will change their behavior and get them to act on the thing that
1: it is that we want them to act on. Okay, so it's really about taking actions. It's not necessarily just changing someone's mind. It's actually getting them to commit to changing an action, perhaps from something they wouldn't have done had you not interjected. That's how you would define it?
0: Correct, because now changing somebody's thinking might be a good first step. But, but it's not necessarily enough. You know, there's an election that'll be coming up in a, in a few years. And if you're having a conversation with somebody about the importance of voting and they may nod their head and go, you know, those are, those are great points. Yeah, you're right. I think everybody should vote. And if they don't go vote, then I haven't persuaded them. I would want them to go to the polls or when I work with salespeople, they want a prospect to say, yes, I'm going to do business with you. It's not enough for them to think, wow, that's a really good proposal. They want them to act on it. So mm-hmm. we're talking about okay. behavior
1: change. Okay, so behavior change. So let's think about that. So in the context of a, a work setting, you're sitting there, you know, with your boss who <laughs> may or may not listen to you or even, you know, like the ideas you you've had. What are some of the things that we need to be doing? What are some of the actions that we need to be taking to be more persuasive? Is there something tangible that we should be doing differently to help change potentially some of the behavior that we may or not <laughs> may or may not like?
0: Oh, absolutely. I, I think everybody has a way that they communicate. I mean, they've, they've probably been doing it for decades, depending on how long that they've been out in the, in the work world. But what we talk about is, can you step back from that and think about the psychology that might make it easier for someone to say yes to you? So an example might be uh, what we call the principle of consensus, which says human beings typically look to other people to see what the appropriate behavior is humans are are essentially pack animals when everybody's doing something we typically think well, that's probably the right thing to do that's why you know four out of five people buy crest toothpaste you know that with that old advertisement a person who never stops to think about that might be really missing an opportunity to persuade someone within their organization that what they're saying should be the thing to do if they don't bring in the fact that hey some of our competitors who are really successful are already doing this they're using this product they're going about it this way that might be enough for that person to say huh if those companies that we're trying to compete against that we see as successful peer companies are doing it maybe we should give consideration to that too so that's a simple application of taking something that's naturally available But a lot of times people don't think about it because it's just not how they've been communicating.
1: Yeah, and I definitely can see consensus in my own career. I had a boss that, you know, anytime you would come to her, she would say, well, what are the other groups doing? She always wanted to have consensus with some of the other planning teams before she would move. She would never actually make an actual decision unless someone else confirmed that was the right decision, which was incredibly frustrating, but now it's a little more understandable when you start thinking about it from a consensus psychology mindset.
0: Yeah, and and there's also a little bit of risk aversion there, right? She probably felt much more comfortable if everyone else was doing something, that's that's putting less of her on the line. If it didn't work, you could say, well, you know, everyone else was doing it, and so we thought it would be the right thing to do. So there's a little loss aversion there on on her part as well.
1: Yeah, I think so, and and it still didn't help uh, the situation. It was certainly frustrating, but I understand why she needed that consensus. And it's something we certainly can do as we're you know talking to our bosses and even our peers. If you have a item where you can say, "Hey, look, there's other people doing this. This is what you know other teams are doing. There's other people doing this." It gives so much more power to your <laughs> argument.
0: Yeah, and another another. Um, tool is scarcity. You know, what will people lose if they don't take action? And that's much more motivating than talking about what people will gain if they take action. So you can talk about the very same thing as gain and savings, and you can talk about it as loss or overpaying. But if you talk about it as loss and overpaying, studies show that two to two and a half times more people will typically take action based on that. So you don't want to come across as a fear monger or scare tactics or anything like that but you want to honestly put out there, what will we lose if we don't do this?
1: Hmm, that's interesting. And so just to make sure it's basically saying, uh, here's the flip side. If you don't do this, this is going to be the consequences. We're going to miss out on these savings. We're going to you know, miss that. And so what you're saying is the research says that leading with that actually can be more persuasive because people, I guess, are are more scared of missing value as opposed to gaining value.
0: Yes. So if you have an idea that you think will help your company make half a million dollars a year, and maybe you look back and you think, gosh, if we would have done this last year and the year before, we would have probably made a half million dollars more. Going in and talking about to to your boss and say, look, I did a little research and we lost a half million dollars last year and we lost a half million dollars the year before. And if we don't make a change this year, we're going to lose a half million dollars again. And you want that person to go, what are you talking about? Well, now you have that platform, right? They're interested. They've asked you, what do you want? What are you talking about? And you begin to say, well, because our people can't do A, B, and C, we lost half a million dollars the last couple of years. And if we don't get them trained up to do A, B, and C, we're going to lose that same half a million dollars this year. That's far more persuasive than saying we could have made an extra half a million dollars the last couple of years, and we'll make an extra half a million dollars this year if we do these these things
1: okay all right that's certainly something that we can take uh, today action on to make sure that we focus on understanding you know what the loss is if the decision isn't made or if this whatever it is you're doing uh, isn't a change in behavior here's going to be the consequences
0: let, you know, me give you you real, let me give you a really tangible example here because I think people will understand this even better Donald if you were if you were a client and I was like a wealth advisor I was you know the person who invested your money. If I came to you and said, you know, Donald, at your age and based on the amount of money that you make and how long you say you're going to work, if we can find a way for you, Donald, to save just 1% more by the time you retire, you'll have an extra $200,000 in your retirement account. Now, that's going to be motivating, but it'll be a lot more motivating if I say, Donald, based on your age and how much longer you think you're going to work and given your uh, salary, if we don't find a way for you to save just 1% more, By the time you retire, you will have given up $200,000 from your retirement account. Feels very different, doesn't it? You're like, oh, what? I'm going to lose $200,000 just because I'm not saving an extra 1%? It's the same $200,000. But when I talk about it, that you'll lose it, you will probably take action. And you know what? If you save that 1%, you'll be real happy when you retire that I was able to persuade you to do so. And I will also benefit because I'll be more successful if I can get more of my clients. So that's what I'm talking about here. Frame that savings into what they'll lose. And the science, the research says far more people will take
1: action. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. I, I think that's a great example and it's a good point. I definitely like the way that you framed that. I can certainly see how that is a more persuasive argument when you kind of flip it around and you're looking at you know what you tend to lose if you don't act. And I think that's that's a great one. I think the uh, another one of the principles uh, that we you know learned about uh, a week or so ago was liking, which is basically others say yes to us more when we genuinely like them. And I think that this is maybe one of the most difficult things to actually take action on because you may not actually like your boss or you might not even like the company you work for. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow we know that the only way to be really persuasive is to actually like them. How do we go about that? I mean, that, that just seems really difficult to actually implement.
0: Yeah, I've got a great story on this, where many years ago, I was I was involved with sales training, but the individual who ran the claims operation for the insurance company that I worked for, he really liked what I was doing, and he saw the application and claims. So he asked me to start coming to some meetings to share my expertise. Very first meeting I went to, the individual who was in charge of the training for claims was sitting across from me, and my distinct impression was he's looking at me like thinking, why the hell are you here? <laughs> you know, this is my gig. What are you doing here? I mean, it was, it was palpable. I could really sense that, that I was encroaching on his territory. Well, I was involved in some of the meetings. And then later that year, I told the uh, chief claims officer, I said, hey, I'm done with all the training for the spring. If you need me, I'm, I'm available. Now, I thought he was going to ask me to come to some more meetings in the home office. But instead, he asked me to go out on the road with this person who I had a sense did not like me. So that means I'm going to spend six out of the next eight weeks on the road with this person. And I thought, I've got to put into practice what I preach. And so I began to do things to try to come to like him. It wasn't about getting him to like me. It was, can I come to like him and trust that he'll respond to that? And a couple of things that we found out right away was he had been involved in some powerlifting when he was in college, and I had done some of that. And he had run ultra marathons, and I used to run marathons. And when we began to connect on those things, everything started to change. And all of a sudden we start turning this corner to not only by the end was he a friend, he has become an advocate. I mean, when I left my corporate job and he had left our company many years ago, but he has been like one of my number one advocates because I really put into practice the things that I was teaching connect on what you have in common, pay people genuine compliments. And what that does for me is it makes me like that person more. And when they sense Mm -hmm. that, they become very open to what I might ask because we naturally believe in our hearts, friends do right by friends. Hmm.
1: That's really interesting. I've certainly seen that in, in my own life, in my own career. And I think that that is kind of, it still seems hard to put in practice and I know I'm going to butcher the quote, but I believe it's Ralph Waldo Emerson that says, "If you want a friend, then you need to be a friend." And that's kind of what this this boils down to: mm-hmm. is you have to like them first. You actually have to be the one to make the effort to find something about that individual that you actually like. i you know, in my head, I'm thinking back to some of the the people that I dislike the most was there any qualities I found in that person that I could either admire or respect? And even the most despicable person, there's probably one or two things I can think, wow, they did that really well. There's one or two things I can can probably find a respect about them.
0: And usually when you find that thing, it's easier to find the second and the third. And then all of a sudden you say, you know what? They may be difficult to deal with for most people, but they're really not as bad as people think. And then of course, when they sense that you like them, they start really changing their behavior towards you. I mean, that's really what I experienced with with this individual. And again, we became really good friends and he has become a big advocate for me. You know, I, I like to put it this way. Abraham Lincoln said, if you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. And when you do that, people respond. But But the good news is when I look at that person and I say, you know what, I really do like them then I work harder for them and I want the best for them. And there's no chance I'm going to manipulate my friends. So it becomes this win-win opportunity.
1: Yeah, you're completely correct. Uh, I've definitely, like I said, I, I've seen that in my career. And, and certainly when I've made the effort, there's a difference, right? There's a difference in the arguments that you make, not necessarily the arguments, but in in the things you talk about, how you're received, you know, people tend to view things more objectively to your point, because they want to listen to a friend and not even necessarily a friend, but just someone who genuinely likes and respects them. You actually can see that being paid back in both directions. So I think that's that's a pretty important point to take home. And, and you've given us three really great points here. You've talked a little bit about consensus, which social proof is probably another word for that, where you know we can try to build consensus with the things we're presenting to our peers and to our bosses. We've talked about scarcity and you know doing that loss framing, talk about the things we can lose, and then finally liking. If we actually focus on trying to like others first, then we're going to actually pay the dividends. Don't worry about anything else. Just focus on liking them first and finding things about them that you can really, really focus on. I also happen to know that uh, you're in the process of uh, writing a book and uh, would love to hear a little bit about kind of what the process is and and what really the intent is behind that.
0: My book is called Influence People powerful everyday opportunities to persuade that are lasting and ethical. And that's kind of my framework when I talk about influence. And there are a lot of really good books on the market about psychology and persuasion, but I felt like a little bit of a shortcoming is translating that into language that the everyday person can understand and say I can do that or they can read about the really cool studies and all of those things but then they go back and like eh, how do I apply that and so my mm-hmm. book is really about that it's how do, how do you apply that we look at decision making we look at business case studies there are also examples for people to take and actually begin to use where they work and we look I also look a little bit at social media and, and some other things too but it's a very generic overview of these principles that we've been talking about, but then very specifically, how can they be applied in different situations and where have some companies used them to their benefit and where have they missed the opportunities and failed?
1: That sounds absolutely fantastic. I'm really looking forward to reading that because I think you're right. I think a lot of it is very academic on you know what we're talking about and what moves people but to actually be able to see that tangibly to learn how to apply them i think is going to be really useful for folks i'm really looking forward to to reading that and you actually you touched on it a little bit in one of your stories uh that you used to be a competitive power lifter and bodybuilder and then you moved on to running the boston marathon how in the world does that happen you don't see a lot of bodybuilders running a marathon what what in the world are you doing man
0: Well, it's interesting because a friend of mine who is a fitness trainer in town persuaded a number of us to start running. And I had stopped competing years before that. And I was still in very good shape compared to most people, but not the kind of shape I was when I was competing. And anyway, when he convinced about a dozen of us that we could probably run the Columbus Marathon, I initially didn't want to do it but my wife said come on let's do this we'll have fun we'll get in shape we'll meet some new people so we started running and an interesting thing happened Donald i fell in love with running and when i talk about when i talk about you know how influence can have a lasting impact i always use this example because when i fell in love with running all of a sudden i started doing what runners naturally do i mean i'm getting in 5k's and 10k's and i'm reading runner's world and i'm buying books on running and what happened was my self identity changed And my friend Judd never had to persuade me to run again, because once I saw myself as a runner, I naturally did what runners do. And sometimes our attempts to persuade other people can touch their core and change their self-identity. As an example, if you have a child who doesn't like school, but you work with them in some capacity and they get their first A and they like how that feels, well, then they probably start studying a little bit on their own because they like how that feels and they see themselves as smart. So that was, that was how I got into running was just because a friend persuaded me to do that. And, and now, given the opportunity to run or lift, if I only have limited time, I'll run every day of the week because I feel better when
1: I do it. You don't see that very often. Uh, I have, I've certainly run in the past, uh, but now the only time I run is if I'm running away from something. I try to avoid it at this point. <laughs> I don't think I got the runner's high, uh, but uh, it sounds nice.
0: I think I built up my endurance running from my problems. That's where I started.
1: (laughs) That's probably the right way to do it. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, we have touched on a a ton of different topics, and a lot of really good tips that uh, folks can use, but we have barely scratched the surface of influence and persuasion and just the things that you can do. I think the most important thing to really take away from this is that persuasion is a skill, right? It can be learned. I think that you know so much of it is you think of someone who has a lot of authority, they have a lot of charisma and you just kind of assume that everything is easy for them. But the biggest thing is that we can learn how to be more persuasive and in turn have more influence, which I think is is pretty awesome. So you know if folks want to learn more, where should they go?
0: Well if they go to my website, which is influencepeople.biz, they'll find all kinds of resources. I've been blogging on this topic every single week for the last 10 years. So like clockwork, every Monday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, a new article goes online. And if they sign up for the blog on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern time, uh, the the blog post will go out. So there's that as a resource. I've got videos. Um, I've been a guest on numerous podcasts. People can click there and and listen to those podcasts to to learn more. Uh, As you mentioned earlier, I've done courses with LinkedIn Learning. And so if somebody's a a member of LinkedIn Learning and they Google my name or they uh, put in my name, Brian Ahern, they'll see the courses that I've done on persuasive coaching, persuasive selling, building a coaching culture. And I'll have a fourth course coming out this fall on dealing with different personality styles. So there's lots of lots of
1: information they can access just from the website. That's great, because I think. Developing and learning how to frame your communication and be more persuasive is so powerful, especially when so much of our conversation nowadays is via email or instant messenger or Slack whatever you're using, learning how to frame your statements and and be careful in what you say is so powerful. So definitely spend some time, go to Brian's website, take a look at all the articles he's got out there. There is a wealth of information. I have just started digging into it and I'm really enjoying it. So I definitely encourage everybody to go check it out. Brian, thanks so much. This has been great. Thank you. My pleasure. Brian gave us some great tips that we can actually put into practice today. To become more persuasive. If you want to find out more, you can check out the resources on Brian's website, InfluencePeople.biz. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with someone. Give us a review. It really helps spread the word. Shameless plug time, my first book, Surrounded by Insanity How to Execute Bad Decisions, is available now on Amazon.com to teach you how to be successful even if your company is asking you to implement ideas that are doomed to fail. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to ask a question or have some ideas that you'd like to see covered on the show, you can head on over to my website, thecorporatemiddle.com. And remember, the reward for good work is just more work. See you next time.